This week on WealthTrack, a rare interview with an active manager delivering exceptional results by investing in a few extraordinary companies. Acri Focus Funds, Chuck Acri and his next generation co-portfolio manager, John Neff, are next on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track, part of our Next Generation Great Investor series. I'm Consuelo Mack. We are always on the lookout for the exceptional on Wealth Track. It's not easy to find among actively managed mutual fund managers. Only 23% of actively managed funds in all major categories, including stocks, bonds, and real estate, outperform their passive index fund rivals over the last 10 years. And only about 8% of U.S. large-cap funds outperform passive, the smallest margin among all active fund category winners. No wonder that active U.S. stock funds are experiencing substantial outflows and passive stock funds are gaining assets. In an historic shift, passive assets in U.S. equity funds recently surpassed those in actively managed ones for the first time ever. Well, this week's guests are bucking all of those trends. They are active managers in primarily large-cap U.S. stocks. They have been beating the market and peers by substantial margins over the last decade, and they are attracting more assets. Joining us for a rare interview is Chuck Acri, founder, managing member, chief executive officer, and chief investment officer of Acri Capital Management, which he launched in 1989. Of the approximately $13 billion Acri Capital manages, nearly $12 billion is in the flagship Acri Focus Fund, which he launched 10 years ago. Acri Focus is rated five-star and carries a silver medalist analyst rating from Morningstar and has a superb track record, beating the S&P 500, the Russell 1000 Growth Index, and its large growth category by substantial margins since inception, with 17% annualized returns and in multi-year periods. And it's done so focused on a small selection of companies, only 17 holdings recently, most of them which it holds for years. Another key member of the Acri team is John Neff, partner at Acri Capital Management, who joined the firm as an analyst in 2009 and is now co-portfolio manager of Acri Focus Fund. Neff is not related to the late great investor by that name, He is building his own reputation at Acri Focus and is off to a good start. I began the interview by asking Acri to describe his investment approach. We have in our conference room a number of slogans that are on the crown molding around the room. And the first one you see says the bottom line of all investing is rate of return. And we we believe that's in our DNA. And so everything we do about selecting an investment goes to the issue about how can we how can we best understand what the rate of return opportunity is in that investment? We believe that uh, what whatever return the business has itself will be reflected in the share price over a period of time. We do some simple little arithmetic to to reinforce that. Then when we when we find a business, 
we really focus on three issues. And we've, in a shorthand, we've all talked about that called the, the three-legged stool. Mm-hmm. And so the first leg is understanding exactly what the nature of the business is and what kind of returns on the owner's capital does it produce. And then we want to see if it has the ability to do that for a long time, if the runway is wide and long, we say. So what's causing that, that above average rate of return to exist? What's, what's going on? What's unusual about that business? So the second leg that we look at is the people who run the business. And we're very focused on the, the skill level of the people who run the business and look at their record and whatnot. But we also want to know that they're acting in the best interest of all shareholders. That is, we see that what happens in the business happens to us on a per share basis. Mm-hmm. And then the last leg of it is the issue of reinvestment. So we examine how it is they have reinvested free cash flow in the past, what the outcomes have been. And they, they rarely break those out, by the way. We, we have to do our own work. And then what the opportunity for reinvestment going forward is, because the fact that they can reinvest all of their free cash flow to earn above average returns enhances our compounding effect. And that's what we're after at the end of the day. We want to compound our shareholders, our clients' capital at an above average rate while assuming a below average level of risk. And the below average level of risk piece for us has got nothing to do with volatility. It has to do with the fact that the businesses we own on, on average are have more returns on capital, have higher growth rates, have stronger balance sheets, and very frequently have lower valuations than the market at the time we purchase them. So on their face, they have less risk than the, than the market, than average. So, John, listening to Chuck, you joined Acre Capital Management 10 years ago mm-hmm. and as an analyst, and then you became a portfolio manager several years later, big mm-hmm. transition. Mm-hmm. You describe yourself as a true believer in this approach. What is it that attracted you to, to Acre Capital Management? There were several things. Um, and the interesting thing about the philosophy and what Chuck has practiced and preached all these years is that there's a real integrity to it. And what I mean by that is that one thing follows naturally from the next. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is that, as he likes to say, we aren't speculators in the price movement of shares. We own businesses. And the focus is on owning the most exceptional businesses that we can find. And if you're really limiting yourself to exceptional businesses, the list of businesses that you would ever own is going to be a short list. And that's why we're incredibly concentrated. And if you've identified a great business and you've purchased it well, why would you be in a rush to sell it? So the turnover is very low. We're not trading in and out of these names. And sort of um, lastly, it was very clear to me that, that Chuck didn't operate under a lot of these sort of institutional imperatives that a lot of inv- man- money managers do uh, in terms of diversification, in terms of willingness to hold cash. So in fact, uh, I actually, before uh, submitting my resume, watched an interview that Chuck did on, on television. I think it was in 2008. And he said at the time, I believe he was 35% cash. And whether being 35% cash was a good thing or not, what, what it said to me very clearly is that here's somebody who thinks and operates independently. So I found that very attractive. And extraordinary companies. Compounding on, machines. The compounding machines, right. So 
Why is it so hard to find those companies? Well, they're, they're scarce. Yeah. Uh, they have something unusual going on. And oftentimes it is not completely obvious as to what it is that's going on. A, a great example of that would be a company like MasterCard or Visa. Uh-huh. They're earning returns on capital that, as we say, you could cut in half twice and it would still be above average for an American business. So something extraordinary is going on there. Right. And the company does not talk about what that is. They never talk about it. Uh, we don't talk about it, but we spend a lot of time thinking about it, trying to understand what it is, whether or not it's likely to continue, that sort of stuff. Why don't you like to talk about it? I, I don't think we're giving away anything, but I just want to make sure we're not. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's just that simple, you know. And, and so the other side of that is a company like that earns earns uh, rates of returns on the owner's capital that are so extraordinary that they don't have a good opportunity to reinvest their free cash flow in ways to continue to earn those above average rates. So what they do with their free cash flow is they buy in shares, they pay a cash dividend, they make small acquisitions in technology around their space, but it's a challenge to to utilize all the free cash they generate. And and uh, and unlike our ideal company is one that can keep reinvesting and earn outrageous returns on capital. Right. One of the things on part of the interview process was that you had to submit a stock idea to Chuck. Right. And so you submitted a stock idea to Chuck and uh, he rejected it and he hired you anyhow. What was the stock idea and, and why Chuck did you reject it? Stock idea first, what happened? Sure. So it was the summer of 2009 and I was interviewing and, and naturally we're talking about ideas. And uh, the primary idea I was pitching to Chuck at the time was Moody's Corporation, mm-hmm. which is best known as one of uh, the two dominant credit rating agencies in the world. Um, and had a selling reputation after the financial crisis. And, well, right? during, well in, during... The, in the wake of the financial yeah. crisis uh, and during the financial crisis, Moody's actually was one of the poster children for what went wrong. Uh, they were roundly blamed for, uh, for the financial crisis and because the ratings were wrong on anything that was uh, related to residential mortgage-backed securities. What I maintained um, in pitching the idea to Chuck was that um, while I wouldn't defend the outcome of any of the ratings or the accuracy of the ratings in any way, shape, or form, what I did believe was that the the problem was upstream from the rating agencies mm-hmm. in terms of that the problem really started with the banks that securitized these products and then misrepresented what was actually in these pools of securities and that Moody's was taking the blame but that in fact that's actually one of the roles that Moody's serves mm-hmm. in the debt capital markets is scapegoat periodically that the franchise would remain intact Well, back to our three-legged stool, business, people, reinvestment, Chuck rejected the idea on the grounds that the people had to have been behaving very poorly. Mm -hmm. What we we sort of shelved the idea. He hired me anyway. Um, The stock was around $16 a share in the summer of 2009. A couple years later, it was in the low 30s. And I said, and it was still dirt cheap. And I said to Chuck, look, I can talk till I'm blue in the face, but 
your problem here is with the people, so let's go see the people. Mm -hmm. So Ah. we came up to see uh, the management team of Moody's. Um, They... uh, uh, I asked most of the questions. And, and I might tell our audience that it's like one of your largest holdings, so just so they yes, know that right, right up front. Uh, yep, okay. And, and I asked most of the questions. Chuck listened. Uh, Chuck lobbed in a, a question periodically. And we went back to the office, and soon thereafter, we started buying the shares. And it was a wonderful lesson for me. You know, here I am brand new and working with Chuck, but the, it was a tremendous lesson that I will never forget. And the lesson was that he could have said, well, I'm Chuck Ockery. I've been doing this a long time. Um, I've, I, I have spoken, and the answer is no. When he was presented with a, with a good case, yeah. he changed his mind. Right. And the... that is a tremendously valuable thing to be able to do in our business. You Mm -hmm. have to do it to be a successful investor. And he showed me in in those early days that he was able to do that, and that really impressed me. Right. They must have made a great case for themselves, management at Moody's. So so why did you decide that that's going to be one of your rare and largest holdings? So what I first said to John was their behavior during the housing crisis was deplorable. Yeah. And what I came to believe was that the people were honorable people, uh, had used bad judgment, uh, but they were honorable people. Okay. And that was really the change uh, because the business itself was, was a terrific business. We've added to the position over the years and, and uh, been hugely successful. So, mm-hmm. When you consider Chuck's approach, just tell me what it is that you believe in. I think at the end of the day, what what it comes down to is a a really firm, qualitative understanding of what makes a business great. We can't screen quantitatively for what it is we're looking for. Right. Uh, If we could, this would be easy. Mm -hmm. Um, If we could, then the algorithms and the quants could 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 find what we find. So our understanding is is invariably qualitative. If we have an edge, that's where it exists. And we, we also understand that nothing is forever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and great business models today may not be in the future. So what we bring to the, to the whole process is judgment. Mm-hmm. And we have this saying that good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And, and um, you know, it's true. You, it, it cannot be to the best of our knowledge, it cannot be uh, substituted for by code and an algorithm and that what sort of stuff that, that we are unlikely to be supplanted by, by somebody's black box. Uh, I mean, because it's, it, is, it is not strictly a matter of quantitative mm-hmm. mathematics, you know. Did you ever try to convince Chuck to invest in any of the things? No. No. I never have. Um, and... And you asked before what, what makes these businesses yeah. so hard to find. Yes. And, and one of the things that makes them hard to find, even if we have a sense that there may be something exceptional happening at the business, that the business might, it might be great, right. we're also limited by our ability to understand the companies. So that also tends to shrink <laughs> the number of potential right. investments that we can make. Amazon, you could understand as it morphed into buying everything, right? But still, 
you know, was difficulty because it wasn't showing a profit and that sort of thing. You could, you could figure out what the cash flow was and, and how they were growing the business. So, so we just, we can't dance all the dances and those things by and large, we just, we, it was not in our wheelhouse for the most part. Right. Yeah, I just would say that. Yeah. Let's talk about one company that you're top holding at the moment at any rate, which is American Tower, which you've held for a long time. Right. And that's a, a tower company. That, right. Uh, right. So explain sure. what it is about American Tower. Today, it is the largest tower company in the world. Uh, operates in 16 countries outside the U.S. approximately. If you want growth in wireless communications, uh, it has. It is. It is deployed through a system of antennas, and the antennas are primarily on towers. So the tower companies really sort of own that toll booth today in the growth of wireless. As, and as we've experienced, 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G to less an extent, 5G that everybody's talking about now. Each of those requires a denser network of antenna, to among other things to to increase the likelihood of uninterrupted uh, communications between the devices and, and whatnot. So, so American Tower and Crown Castle and uh, some others sit in that space mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a very desirable space. And, and the way you see that, when I talked about rates of returns at the outset, the rate of return on an incremental antenna at American Tower, once they get to break even, the incremental turn is probably north of 90%. And, and which is a very powerful business model. So one of the things that's happened at, at Acre Capital Management since you've been there, uh, John, is, is that you know the assets under management have really grown. So when, when I talked to Chuck in, I think it was 2014, the assets under management were three billion, they're now 12 About, or 13 yeah, exactly billion, right. yeah. exactly. And you know, there's this, this research that shows that you know, s- smaller money managers you know, can really do well, but when they get more money, it be, they, don't, they can't really deploy it well, and therefore they're, they don't do as well in the future. You've avoided that so far. So how do you think you're avoiding that kind of investment rule? Before he answers, I'll yes. say, I'm not sure we are avoiding it. <laughs> now, well, and, no, and the other part of my question should be, when I talked to you in 2014, that you had 30 holdings, you're now down to 17. You've got a ton more money. Shouldn't you have more holdings? So go ahead. Right. So we, th- we always talk about our ability to, to do better than average. Right. And so when you think about average, so, so when I think about average, I don't necessarily think of our AUM. What I think of is our ability to stay concentrated. So give me, let me give an example. If you flipped a coin, the average outcome would, that, would be that 50% of the time it would be heads and 50% of the time it would be tails. The more coins you flip, the more likely you are to get to average. 50% will mm-hmm. be heads. The fewer coins you flip, the more likely you are to get an outcome that deviates positively or negatively from average. And I think- So you're flipping coins, Chuck. You didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. but that's, that's what I mean by- So that's our, the philosophy. Our, so, so it's really not about our AUM. It's our ability to stay concentrated in our highest conviction ideas. And our AUM hasn't been a problem to date. In 2014, if we had 30 or 35 holdings, mm-hmm. we would have been at that point in time less confident in those names than we are in the 17 oh. holdings today. Okay. So if you see our holdings- go to 35 again, you should just understand that it means we are less conf- confident in the 
in the characteristics of the group as a whole, and, and that's why we have it spread out. And then the concentration, pure concentration is, we want to have as much money invested in the great businesses as we possibly can, because our return will come from their good experience. We will be riding on the back of those great businesses. So that's why we want to have all this, our capital concentrated in those things. Then lastly, the law of large numbers. It stands to reason, and we've already experienced it, it that little, small businesses can't have much of an impact on a $12 billion portfolio. Right. So we, we don't have small companies in the, in the fund any longer. Oh, you don't? We don't. I mean, because they don't add value. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so we, we run into that a little bit, as you would expect. So what interesting is that, that you had told me over the phone that you don't have, that another differentiator is you don't have sell targets. Correct. At Acre. That's and huge. So if we've identified a great business, uh, a compounding machine that we've purchased well, um, we want not to interrupt that compounding mm -hmm. unnecessarily by, by curtailing it with a, price, with a sell target. Mm -hmm. um, we want these businesses to continue to, comp to compound and we want to own them as long as they continue to be exceptional. So no, no sell targets, only buy targets. Which actually goes to my next question to Chuck is that when, I, you know, when we're talking about kind of the next 30 years or 40 years or 50 years of agri-capital management, and you told me that, it, that the process has to be logical, understandable, and repeatable. Yes, and, and we, think, we think the evidence fully supports that. Uh, a, it is logical when we talk about the simplicity of the process, understanding these great businesses and the high returns. Um, it is logical that, 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 that your returns come from the experience of the businesses. And it's repeatable because we've now been doing it in the focus fund for 10 years and in our firm overall for 30 years. Right. And continuing to have above average outcomes. And, and you know, so I rest my case. I mean, that's, <laughs> <laughs> and, and as a true believer, have you had any moments of doubt about that approach? None. 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 Um, you know, the test for that is always in a market downturn. Yes, uh, because which the you haven't experienced at Acre yet. Not, in a, not in a protracted career. way. Mm -hmm. We haven't had a bear market, but we've had some tougher, mm -hmm. we've had right. some tough years in the market uh, generally um, and, and less good returns generally in certain years. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, we haven't had a, a full-fledged bear but market. You, you look at 2018 where, right. where the market gave up all of its return uh, in the fourth quarter and, and it was down roughly 4% on the year, but our fund was up 4% on the year. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean... Uh, um, so your companies protected you. The, our again, companies protected us. Below right. average risk. It was not because we were clever at buying right. and selling, you know, uh, uh, stocks during the daytime. To, right. <laughs> <laughs> One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. Yeah, I would probably choose MasterCard. Mm -hmm. uh, it's such an extraordinary business, MasterCard and Visa, that is in the business of the electronic exchange of value and, and view the credit card itself as, as what they call a form factor that doesn't really have great relevance long term. It's just, it's just how, you, how you access the rails that, that complete transactions around the world. Mm -hmm. There are lots of things going on in electronic exchange of value around the world. They're, they have a front row seat in terms of their investments in technology and so on. They and others are bringing to bear and the whole issue of secure 
payment for transactions and exchange of value. John? Well, I like to say just another word about MasterCard. I like to sometimes say that the way I think of MasterCard is that whatever you buy, wherever you buy it, whether you buy it online, whether you go into a store to buy it, with MasterCard, we own a business that has secularly improving odds of being involved in that purchase transaction and thereby profiting. That's a pretty exciting business to own. So we'll leave it there. You two are unified in your one investment recommendation. <laughs> Jack Ockrey, so great to have you here on WealthTrack again. Thank you, that's well. And John Neff, lovely to meet you. And Thank you. Congratulations for this team uh, that is doing so well. It's great to have great. you here as well. Good. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is pay attention to a mutual funds culture and investment team. The reason we are doing our series on next generation investors is to highlight how important continuity is in a firm's leadership, investment philosophy, goals, and discipline. There have been so many instances in my career where once a star manager leaves a fund, it changes and existing shareholders are left not knowing what's going to happen next. It's frequently not pretty. Having confidence in a fund's culture and direction is a huge plus for successful long-term investing. Well, next week, financial thought leader and leading strategist Jason Trenert will update us on the changing state of the economy and markets. In this week's extra feature, Chuck Ockrey and John Neff share some personal insights on keeping mentally fresh and we look forward to hearing your insights on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. As the nation observes Veterans Day, we extend our gratitude and admiration to all who have served, including my husband and son. Have a memorable weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.